Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I can't think of a better person to follow than Jesus. Amen? <clears throat> what a wonderful hymn to sing. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you here again this morning. And I trust that the Lord has a blessing in store for each one of us. And I trust that the Lord has blessed each one of you as well. Uh, I invite you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to start with a brief word of prayer. And then we'll dive into our study together. Loving Father in heaven. We are thankful, Lord, that you have come to give us an example that we can follow. And may the song of our hearts this next week be, I will follow thee, my Savior. This morning, Father, as we reflect upon your word, we pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to us through it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In John, the 13th chapter, we find... Jesus and the disciples alone in the upper room. They are having a very meaningful conversation. Well, at least Jesus is having a meaningful conversation with them. And his heart is burdened with a lot of things that he needs to share with his disciples before he's finally led to the cross. As you know, the disciples were not in a very teachable frame of mind at this point. They were arguing amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. They were jockeying for the best position on the left and the right of Jesus at the table. They really had a lot of strife inside of their hearts. Judas, as you know, has already betrayed Jesus at this point. And while all of this is going on, this dynamic in the upper room Jesus really hits to the heart of the issue. And he makes a statement in John 13 and verse 35 that we read last week in our sermon together, but we're going to look at it a little bit more today. By this, Jesus says, shall all men know that you are my disciples if, if ye have what? Love what? Now, In the general sense, we oftentimes apply this Bible passage to mean that we should love everybody. And of course, that would be true. That would definitely be an application to the Bible passage. But given that we know the context and what's going on in the upper room, the more specific application of the Bible passage is that Jesus is telling the disciples that the world would know that they are his disciples if they have love for one another in that group. All those people that are bickering amongst themselves who should be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, if you love one another in this group, the 12 of you, that this would be the example to the world that you are my disciples. And of course we know that as we look at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, as we see the disciples there coming together in unity and experiencing this love that Jesus has talked about in John chapter 13, the result was indeed the world knew that they were disciples of Christ. The gospel went to the world at a very rapid pace. This morning what I want to do is I want to take a look at this concept of love in the Bible. The word that we know as agape in the Greek I think there's going to be a couple of lessons that we can learn that will help us in our personal walk with the Lord and also in our interactions with other people. The Servant of the Lord writes in one of the periodicals in 1901, 
the Southern uh, Review, January 1 of 1901, she writes this statement. He only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Who are the ones that know God, according to that? Those who what? Now listen, this is a biblical concept. The Bible says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love, right? So she's saying, if we don't love our fellow man, we cannot know who. That should give us some pause for thought. She goes on and she says this. This is the reason why. What is the reason why? The lack of love. This is the reason why that there is so little genuine vitality in our churches. Why is there little vitality in our churches? Because there is little. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word vitality? Life, energy, excitement. This is the reason why, she says, that there is so little life, energy, excitement in our churches. Why? Because there is little love. Then she goes on, she makes this, this, this bombshell of a statement that I had to read several times before I really got the grasp of it. It says this, theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the what? Did you catch that? I had to read that a couple of times. The first time I read that to me, Dory, when I, when I first saw it, she was like, wow, I've never, I've never heard that. And of course, I thought the same thing when I read that. Theology is valueless unless it is saturated with the love of Christ. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word saturation? Right, that's exactly right, Norm. The word saturate means it cannot hold anymore. It's like the sponge on your, on your sink counter in your kitchen that dries up throughout the day. And then the dishes are time, it's time to wash the dishes and you get that sponge out and you put it underneath the water and it fills up until it, until it is saturated with water, cannot hold anymore. And she says that only when theology is saturated with the love of Christ, that then it becomes what? Valuable. Did you catch that? If we want our theology to have value to it, to others, we should first, what? Saturate it with love. Then it'll have value. Then she says this, God is supreme His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of the character of God. Then she says, in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul defines what? Christ-like love, which is what our theology needs to be saturated with. 1 Corinthians 13 defines Christ-like love. And then she says this, it would be well to print this chapter in small type in every paper issued by our presses. Did she th- do you think that she thought this chapter was important? Every paper that comes off of our printing press should have 1 Corinthians 13 somewhere on the page in small type. And she also tells us, interestingly enough, that this chapter should be read every single day. You think that would change us if we read that chapter every day? Thinking about it, reading it, meditating on it, thinking about it, reading it, meditating. And then she quotes 1 Corinthians 13 and she concludes by making this statement. This chapter is an expression of the obedience of all who love God and keep his commandments. It is brought into the action in the life of every true believer. Every true believer will have this experience in 
their life. This morning, I want you to go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to delve into this a little bit more, because I don't know about you, I want to know God better, amen? I want my theology to be valuable, amen? I want to have the character of Jesus, amen? So we ought to spend a little bit of time understanding this. Now, let me, before we get into this, and actually today we're really not going to get into 1 Corinthians 13. That's to come as we continue to unfold this series. But let me make this statement here at the very beginning. Unfortunately, 1 Corinthians 13 has kind of been relegated to the wedding. 1 Corinthians 13 has kind of been relegated to the love chapter between a husband and wife or between, you know, two people that are dating each other. I want to tell you this morning, 1 Corinthians 13 is much more than that. It is much more than that, and it is lacking, I believe, in our churches today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. Notice the preamble here. You know this already, but when the Bible was written, it did not have chapter and verse divisions in it. So it would have just read like a letter. Paul would have just continued going on here after verse 31, and he says this in verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And then he would just continue on from there. So Paul here tells us to do something. What does he tell us to do? He says to, what's the first word? Well, second word, thank you. Covet, right? When was the last time you found that the Bible told you to covet something? You know, there's two types of coveting in the Bible. One that's forbidden and one that's encouraged. Did you know that? We just read it, right? In the 10th commandment, the Bible says, thou shalt not what? We shouldn't covet. But here Paul tells us to covet earnestly the best gifts. So there's two types of coveting here. One that the Bible condemns and one that the Bible encourages. The commandment that tells us thou shalt not covet is a commandment that tells us not to covet physical objects, visible things, tangible things, material things. The Bible says not to covet those things, not to want to take them from somebody else so that you can have them. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible here is telling us to covet something that is not going to take away from, but is going to add to the church. Amen? So that's the difference there. It's not something that we're taking away from somebody, but actually when we covet the best gifts, we are adding to the church. And I got a point that I'm going here. Follow me as I talk about the gifts a few moments here, and then we're gonna connect this into 1 Corinthians 13 and see how it all comes together. Now notice the gifts that Paul mentions in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, the whole chapter there, Paul is talking about the body of Christ, the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit, and he lists, he lists them here in verse 28. He says, and God hath set some in the church, first what? Apostles, secondarily, <clears throat> prophets, thirdly, teachers, after that, Miracles, then gifts of, and next, helps, then governments, diversity of tongues. Eight different gifts that Paul outlines that would be in the church, and Paul says to covet them how? Now, it's interesting. When you look at that word, uh, to covet earnestly, it comes from the Greek word zelo, where we get the word zeal from. And it literally means to burn with zeal for something, to be zealous in pursuit of something good. Be zealous, be earnest, be desirous of the good things. Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts. There's nothing wrong with coveting these gifts because in the process, we are not robbing anybody of anything but we are adding to the church. Now, I want to make a statement here, and I think you all will agree with me, that if you look at that list there in verse 28 of the gifts of the Spirit, you will find that those gifts are important 
to the prosperity of the church and the furtherance of the gospel commission. Would you agree with me, yes or no? Sure. We need those gifts. We need the gifts of the Spirit to move the church forward to fulfill the gospel commission. Now, notice Paul kind of fleshes this out a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We're all familiar with this. The Bible says this, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some and teachers. Uh, now, do we still need apostles today? Yes or no? Modern day missionaries. Of course we do. Do we still need uh, prophets today? Yes or no? Yes. Do we still need evangelists today? Yes or no? How about pastors? Say yes. Somebody say amen. Do we still need teachers today? Sure we do. These gifts, we need them in the church for the furtherance of what God has called us to do. Now, Paul goes on and he tells us why these gifts are important. He goes on, for the perfecting of the saints. Do the saints need a little perfecting, yes or no? Sure they do. For the work of the ministry. Does the ministry need a little help? course it does for the edifying or the building up of the body of christ does god's body does the church need to be built up yes or no yes so he says this is this is part of the reason why god gives us the the gifts of the spirit so that the church can be built up so that the saints can be perfected so that the ministry of god can move forward and then he says in verse 14 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So basically, Paul is telling us here that the reason why God gives us the gifts of the Spirit is so that it brings stability in God's church. Can you see that? See, God wants us to not be carried about with every wind of false doctrine. You know, children, if you tell them a lie, are they going to believe it? Most likely they will, because they don't have much context. But the gifts of the Spirit give stability to the church so that when false doctrine comes, we can stand through that that wind of false doctrine and stand on the truth. I cannot overemphasize the importance of the gifts of the Spirit. But I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to just think about this. Don't answer it. Just, Just think about it. Back in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul says to covet earnestly, zealously, the best gifts. Listen to me carefully. You ready for the question? Are you ready? I'm not convinced. I'm going to tell you anyways. Here's the question. When was the last time that you coveted one of the gifts of the Spirit. That's something worth reflecting on, isn't it? Paul says that we should covet earnestly the best gifts, zealously, passionately. We should covet these things, not because it builds us up, but because it builds the church of God up. Not because it brings glory to me, but because it brings glory to God. Not because of what I can do, but because of what God can do through me. He says, covet earnestly the best gifts. When was the last time that you coveted the gift of an apostle being a modern day missionary? When was the last time you coveted the gift of being a prophet or not necessarily one who foretells the future, but maybe one who interprets the books of prophecy? When was the last time that you coveted the gift of teaching or healing or helps or governments or the gift of tongues? Paul says to the church of Corinth, covet earnestly the best gifts. When was the last time you did that? You know, oftentimes, especially when it comes to be 
nominating committee time, we hope that the responsibility gets put on the shoulder of somebody else. And you've already heard this, right? If somebody calls and says, hey, would you be willing to take a position? Usually you can take that as an indicator that God is leading in that direction. So beware, some of you are going to be getting phone calls tomorrow. Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay, just checking. But Paul says to cover earnestly the best gifts, that, that, that this is something that would build up the church of God and move them forward. But he says something more than this, and this is where the contrast comes in this morning. He says, covet earnestly the best gifts, and then what does he say? Yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Did you catch the contrast? Paul is taking two great things here and he's contrasting them. He spends chapter 12 defining and talking about the body of Christ. Talking about the gifts of the spirit. And then he makes this transition statement in verse 31 where he says, And now I will show you a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way according to the context of the book? It is 1 Corinthians 13. It is the way of love. Now, notice what it says in the New English translation of this passage. I love the way uh, this particular version translates this verse. It says this, but you should be eager for the greater gifts, and now I will show you a way that is beyond comparison. Isn't that beautiful? So Paul is saying, listen, the the gifts of the Spirit are important, but I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. And he outlines for them agape in 1 Corinthians chapter. The word charity there is the word agape. It's love. So he's contrasting these two things. Now let me ask you a question. Is the gifts of the Spirit important to the prosperity of the church, yes or no? Of course they are. Huge. We need them. Paul is trying to emphasize that. And as important as they are to the prosperity of the church, how much more important to the prosperity of the church is what he's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 13. Are you all with me this morning, yes or no? You catching it? Paul is saying, listen, it's important. We need the gifts of the Spirit so that we can move forward the work of God. But don't do it without what I'm going to tell you in 1 Corinthians 13. This is more than just a love chapter. This is more than just something for the wedding time or two people that are engaged in a relationship. This is a chapter that has huge implications in us fulfilling the gospel commission. You know, Jesus talked to the religious leaders of his time, and he called them whited sepulchers. You remember that? Did they like that? They didn't like that. What did he mean when he called them white at sepulchers? They look good on the outside, right? But what happened on the inside? Full of dead men's bones. You know, I believe that a church without agape is like a white at sepulcher. It looks good on the outside. It's got all the right thinking. It's got all the right statements. Looks good and everything like that. But inside... There's not the life that the church needs to have. We've already found out that without that life, that agape, that love, our theology doesn't mean much. 
And I'm here to tell you this morning that I believe with all my heart, soul, and mind, and I have a firm conviction on this, that if our church is infused with agape, there is no question about it, it will grow. And I believe that part of the reason why our church, now again, I'm speaking generally here, but I think we can learn something from this in our own specific church as well. But I think in general terms, the reason why our evangelism is struggling in North America is because there is a dearth of agape among God's people. There's more of a tolerance or a putting up with one another rather than an agape, which is the character of Jesus. And I believe that when that happens, we will see Acts chapter 2 happen in our church. There's no question about it. That's what took place. The disciples were picking amongst themselves, who will be the greatest in John chapter 13? In Acts chapter 2, they put all that stuff aside. They came together in unity. They loved one another as Jesus loved them. And boom, the gospel went to the world and the New Testament church exploded. In his book on love, Taylor Bunch makes this interesting statement. He says, unless love is the keystone or the cornerstone of belief and the spring of action, the profession of Christianity is mere talk, dry formality. And what's the last one there? Have you ever seen a Christian that looks like they're in heavy drudgery before? Why is that? Because there's an absence of something in their life. The life-giving love of God. There's a drudgery that comes to our Christian experience when we have to deal with each other and we don't have that love of God inside of our hearts. So what's going on here? What what does the Bible mean when it talks about this concept of love? Unfortunately, in the English language, we only have one word to express this, love. If I said, I love my wife, I love apple pie, and I love my dog, you understand that those are all different loves, right? I don't love my wife the same way I love my dog. Somebody should say amen to that. I don't even have a dog. But you get the point, right? You know, a husband who loves his wife the way he loves his dog doesn't deserve to have a wife. It's different. If I just said the word love, you don't understand what kind of love I'm talking about. In the English language, you have to have context in order to understand what that love means. But in the, in the Greek writing in the New Testament, they did not need the context because they had different words to express the different types of love that they are talking about. And you could read that one word and instantly know what the context was because that word had a specific meaning. Now, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I want to share with you a few of these definitions just so we can kind of see what it is that Paul is trying to emphasize here as we get into 1 Corinthians 13 over the next couple of weeks. The first Greek word that you will find is the Greek love phileo or friendship love. This is the love, this type of love is a warm feeling of affection. Phileo is an emotional and it's emotional and spontaneous. But the weakness of this type of love is that in order for it to exist or in order to show it, it has to be what? It has to be reciprocated, it has to be shared. In other words, I phileo you, you phileo me and therefore phileo exists. But if I only phileo you and you don't phileo me back, then it, doesn't, it just kind of it fails, it fizzles out. This is the type of love that you will experience when you see your spouse or when you saw your spouse for the first time and said, I want that person to be my, my mate for the rest of my life. It's an emotional feeling. It's a, it's a warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling that is good. Now, unfortunately, many marriages are built off of this type of love. 
And when they hit hard times, they end up in court. You understand what I'm talking about, right? So the, this type of love needs to mature in the human relationship. It can't just stay phileo, but it's got to mature into something a little bit more deeper. And we could talk about more, more of that another time. The other Greek uh, love that you find is the Greek word storge, uh, which is a family type of love. Storge is a natural love or affection of a parent for their child or one family member towards another. It's oftentimes translated in the Bible as brotherly love. You've heard that before, right? Philadelphia is where, where we find that word. So it's a love between family members, church family members, you know, uh, kin family members. It's that type of love that exists among the family or brotherly love as the Bible oftentimes translates it. Eros is a physical attraction. You won't find this Greek word in the New Testament, but you'll find it in the Old Testament translation in the Greek. Uh, it's God restricts Eros to one man and one woman who are in a relationship within the bounds of marriage. Eros can often be selfish in the form of what? This is the type of love that we oftentimes see in Hollywood, okay? This is, this is the type of love that's out there in the world that's most prevalent. A healthy eros would be a physical attraction between what? A married couple, okay? So there's nothing wrong with it. It just needs to be in the right context. Now, these three loves that I've just described to you, generally speaking, in order for them to exist, they have to be reciprocated. So I give it, it comes back to me, and therefore it continues to grow. If it's only given and not gotten, it begins to fail. This isn't the case with agape. Agape love is different than that. God's love continues. Now, God never tells us to eros anybody. God never tells us to phileo anybody. God never tells us to storge anybody, but he does command us to agape. Are you all with me this morning? That's why we find statements in the Bible like this in, uh, in uh, the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter six, verse 27. It says, but I say unto you, which here, what does it say? Love, agape your enemies. Do good to them, which what? Hate you. Does that feel good? Do you want to love your enemies? Naturally speaking, you don't want to. And that's the interesting thing. Agape is not a natural response. It's something that God has to give you and create inside of you. Phileo, eros, and storge, that's more of a natural response. It kind of exists because we are human. But when it comes to agape, God has to create that thing inside of us because naturally speaking, I do not love my enemies. But God commands us to. He commands us to agape. Now, the interesting thing about agape is that agape can exist on its own. It doesn't have to be reciprocated. I don't have to get agape back from you in order for me to agape you. It can exist solely on its own because it is a principle, not an emotion. Did you catch that? 1 Corinthians 13 is not an emotional type of love. It's not something that comes and goes based on how I feel at the time. But agape is a principle that God has given to me that, 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 that dictates my character and how I interact with other people. And that's why Jesus says that we ought to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. Notice a couple of passages where we find this word agape. John chapter 3 and verse 16, we're all familiar with this one. Let's read it together. For God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. Let me ask you the question. Did God want to send his son to this world, yes or no? Did God want to see his son die, yes or no? Did God want to be separated? No, God did not want this. But because he agaped the world, he was willing to do it. He wanted what was best for his children. Here's another one. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the Bible says, If the, uh, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who what? Agaped me and did what? Did Jesus want to do that? Yes or no? No, but he did it because he knew it was what was going to be best for humanity. He knew it would help us, it would guide us, and it would draw us closer to him and eventually into the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have your Bible, so go with me, if you would, to 1 John. I want to share with you one more Bible passage on this, and then we'll wrap it up. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. John here is again talking, and he's referring to agape again. He says this, My little children... Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but what? And in, now there's nothing wrong with loving in word or in tongue. There's nothing wrong with that. You can tell people that you love them. That's, that's a good thing to do. But if that's all it is, we become the white at sepulchers that Jesus was talking about. Just a mere profession, but nothing that's coming from within. But the other thing I find interesting that John says here is he says to love in what first? In what? Deed and? I don't think there's a mistake in that order. But oftentimes we get it reversed. And we want to love people to the truth and then we will love them in deed. But John says that we should first love them in deed and then love them to the truth. Did you catch that? That's an important, significant point, that if we love people the way Jesus said we ought to love them, then they would be more receptive to the truth. Here's the interesting thing. When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus' life could be defined as agape. Anything that he did in the Gospels was agape love. Did he have much fruit from his ministry, yes or no? During his three and a half years? There was little to no fruit. Not very many people were one to the church during Jesus' three and a half years of earthly ministry. But he was planting seeds, was he not? He was planting seeds in the hearts of all those people that he healed, that he helped of their physical maladies, that he spoke a word of encouragement to. Whatever it was, he was planting all those seeds. And then when the truth came along in Acts chapter 2, boom, people accepted that truth because of what Jesus had done for them before. Do you see that? Jesus loved indeed, and then the truth came along, and 3,000 people were baptized. I want to tell you something this evening, friends. This is the impetus that will cause our church to explode if we are willing to do it. But I want to tell you something else. This type of love is not an easy love. You see, I believe we live in a society where we want microwave evangelism, where we can just do a series, pop somebody in the oven for a couple of uh, days, and then boom, they come out at the end and everything is the way it ought to be. But I believe that the Bible more accurately describes 
crockpot evangelism, if you will. You all understand what I mean, right? Especially the ladies. Sometimes it takes time. Things gotta bake. Things gotta cook. They gotta marinate together and they gotta work themselves. It, it, it needs a little bit of time for it to get to the point where it is palatable. And that's what Jesus did. Now listen, there's no question about it that sometimes it's quicker for some than it is for others. But the vast majority of the time, there is time that needs to be involved in, or invested in people. Let me tell you a story. <clears throat> in one of my churches, in my previous district, we held a depression recovery seminar for eight weeks. Fantastic program. We, uh, we had our information session, and there was a lady who came to the information session who noticeably did not want anybody to talk to her. She came in the back, she sat in the back pew, she had her little bubble, and as soon as the meeting was over, boom, she was gone after she signed up. She signed up for it at least, but she took off fairly quickly. Didn't want to talk to anybody. Later on, we found out that she had been struggling with depression for 20 years. Can you imagine that? Being locked in depression for 20 years? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, depressed, depressed, depressed. Can you imagine the depths of darkness that you would go into? We also found out later on that on that night of the information session, when she came to the church parking lot, she drove right past the entrance. She said, forget this, I'm gonna go home. I'm not gonna do this. She got to the end of the road and something told her to turn around and go back. And so she turned around and she came back and she pulled into the parking lot, she parked the car and she came in. Night after night, Week after week, she came to the, to the uh, depression recovery seminar. We taught her different principles on how to, how to get the mastery over your depression. Diet and exercise and positive thinking and cognitive thinking, reading scripture, reading the book of, uh, of Proverbs and lots of different tools that we give, dietary things. And, and she was beginning to, to, to crack it and start to experience some level of victory in her life. When we got to the end of the depression recovery seminar, she came up to me and the elder that was helping me to do the thing. And she said, listen, I want to talk to you guys. Now, this is a lady who came week after week and she didn't talk to anybody. And now she was stepping out and saying, I want to talk to you. Can can we talk sometime? I said, sure, we'd be happy to talk. I wanted to hear this lady's story. So we got together one day. We were sitting in the church and we were talking. She didn't have a lot to say, but what she did say was profound. She said, I would like to become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She had never heard the state of the dead. She had never heard the three angels' messages. She had never heard the Sabbath, the 2300 days, second coming. She never heard any of that stuff. And I was scratching my head. I was like, hang on a second here. We haven't done any Bible doctrine. All she's read is the book of Proverbs and she had no religious background. She wasn't raised in the church. She didn't attend church at that time. But we got to the end of the depression recovery seminar and she said, I want to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I said, okay, let's do some Bible studies. We started doing Bible studies with her. One doctrine after another. I accept that, I accept that, I accept that, I accept There was no question. It just it went all smooth. And at the end of it, I finally realized what it was that triggered inside of her mind. She found people who loved her unconditionally. 
She found people that would love her even if she did not give anything back to them or even if they didn't get anything out of it. They just simply wanted to do something that would help benefit her with no strings attached. And she said, I want to be with those kind of people. I want to believe what they believe. I want to be like they are. And I had the privilege right before I came to this district to baptize Gail in uh, Lake Huron, and it was a beautiful experience. But I want to tell you something this morning. We worked with her for two years, prayed with her, studied with her, not because she was resistant, but she just needed, she needed a lot of encouragement. Two years, we prayed with her, we cried with her, we cried for her, we prayed for her, we prayed with her, we studied. It was a lot of work that went into it, but in the end, she is a Seventh-day Adventist in this church today. Now, I want to tell you this morning, I don't think many of us have much interest in this type of evangelism, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. We don't really have the much, that much interest to invest so much into one person. But I want to tell you something, friends. This is what the world is looking for. If all we have to offer is the same kind of love that the world has to offer, what do we have to offer? There's nothing that, that the church has that, that they can't already get. The world is looking for people who will love them unconditionally without any strings attached, and then they will say, hey, if that's how they are, I want to be like them. And I believe that 1 Corinthians 13 holds the key that will give us explosive results in our reaching out to our community. Amen? And so this morning, I ask you, how are you loving people? What type of love do you have towards your brethren? Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. How's it going here? We got to start looking around here first and say, hey, how is it with me? Now, listen, there may not be anything between you and other church members, and that's fine if there isn't. But I've been around long enough to know. (laughs) that there are oftentimes things that creep up within the church that divide the church family. And I want to tell you something this morning, that we need to get a grip on that if we're going to be effective in God using us to reach out to our community. God has put the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church here as a beacon of light in our community, and God is blessing the work that we are doing, and we're thankful for that. We are abundantly thankful for the souls that were baptized last year. We are abundantly thankful for the souls that are going to be baptized this year. But I'm not, I'm not satisfied. I believe God can do greater if we have 1 Corinthians 13 experience in our hearts. If we have that character of Christ that loves unconditionally, that is willing to be spent and, and, to, and to spend and be spent, that is willing to invest even if there's nothing that comes out. There is no glory to this kind of work. There is no chart that you can put and say, well, we've had this much success in showing agape love. There's none of that. It just has to come from within. It is who we are. It is something that we cannot do otherwise because the character of Christ is so perfectly reproduced in us. That's the way we are. And I believe that when that takes place, our church will grow exponentially. I want that. How about you? I want an Acts chapter 2 experience for us. And so will you join me this morning in the prayer, asking God, give us this experience, Father. As we study 1 Corinthians 13, give us 
this experience. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have called us to be your children. We are thankful, Lord, that you are calling us up a little bit higher to not be satisfied with the status quo, but to go above and beyond. Say, I want to be like Jesus. Father, I pray that this agape love would start within this building among us as your people, that we would be self-sacrificing and unconditional in our love towards one another. And Father, I pray that it would spill out from our church into our community and that it would compel people, as it did in Acts chapter 2, to embrace the message, the beautiful message that you have given to us. Bless us to this end, Lord, I pray. Give us the persistence to keep pushing forward and let you do your perfect work in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.